0: Such a beautiful, beautiful text. For there will arise in Egypt a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Our New Testament reading continues now into an obscure spot in the gospel according to Matthew that's not heard or preached often. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, please, for she keeps shouting after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep to the house of Israel. But she persisted and came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to throw the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She replied, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. Well, the honeymoon is over. You've never hissed at me at a bad joke before. Wait until this sermon. I have not in 15 years had a comment after worship Preacher, could you give us that story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman again? I love that text. For those who prefer their Jesus without rough edges, today's gospel lesson is not for you. Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman is found in both Matthew and Mark and is among those passages preachers and students of the Bible call difficult. Difficult passages are difficult for many reasons. Most often the problem is with reading and relating to the document and language 2,000 years old. Different grammar, customs. Sometimes it's with the God we find in the text. The God we find in the text is not the God that we expected or the God we want or the Savior we are looking for. The story of Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman is not difficult in these ways. I find it difficult because Jesus comes off a little like a jerk. You know, the second service didn't laugh at that line either. (laughs) The first did, though, so I left it in. The story is set in one of the only instances of Jesus leaving his country. It is, occurs just after a very testy encounter with Jesus has with the religious professionals like me. And he heads for the first time outside of Israel, up to Jewish, out of Jewish Samaritan land and to a, a land inhabited by the ancestors of the Canaanite people. Now, if you remember, even know your Old Testaments, Israel and the Canaanites uh, had difficult relationships. And so Jesus, without his passport, heads north. I can relate, because this seems to be a theme, Jesus trying to get away from it all, and then gets interrupted, called back into the business of his calling. And suddenly, a Canaanite woman comes out shouting at him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus did not say a word. Matthew goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus was silent to this reply. I checked John Wesley's explanatory notes on the New, Test- New Testament, and Wesley says, Well, sometimes Jesus is silent. <laughs> Thank you, John Wesley. <laughs> he ignores her intentionally. How many of us have done that? Headed off to our vacation, headed off to our place of business, headed off to whatever event we may be going to, and someone by the streets holds up a sign, may I have some money, I'm homeless, taps us on the back, "Can can you help me? How many of us have not done exactly what Jesus did here? Yet she is persistent and noisy and annoying the disciples. The next we hear from is the disciples. The disciples come to Jesus. Jesus, she is annoying us. Can't you do something about it? And Jesus again ignores her, but he does speak to him, speak to his disciples. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, implying not to her. Well, now this text is becoming difficult, isn't it? You might say, though, in terms of today's communications and public relations, that Jesus is staying on message here. In chapter 10 of this gospel, Jesus sends out the 12 specifically with this commission, Go nowhere among the Gentiles... Or of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew is a gospel written for what you might call Jewish Christians, or Christians becoming Jews, becoming well, they are just Jews. And so this text is written for and about the people of Israel. And if in a nice interconnectual relationship today, we realize that Joseph escaped to Egypt in a time of famine, just as Jesus' father Joseph will escape to Egypt to avoid the anger of Herod. These two texts echo one another, and so it's a Jewish text. And at this point in the text, the mission is to the good religious folks. And honestly, we need some good religion, don't we? But she remains equally persistent and resolutely on message herself, throwing herself at Jesus' feet, daring a Canaanite woman to use Jesus' own language of prayer. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy, Son of David, she is the first to use the royal title before the disciples do. This foreign woman dares to remind Jesus who's he called to be. Now she stopped meddling and going on to preaching. Jesus answers, it's not fair to take children's food and to throw it to the dogs. Now this is where commentators do interpretive backflips to attempt to get Jesus off the hook for saying something that sounds pretty derogatory. In the prior generation we'd pulled out we would pull out William Barclay's commentary on the New Testament, Barclay would always soften up the edges on passages we had difficulty to, and he does point out that the word Jesus used here for dog is not the stray dog, it's sort of the household dog. So Barclay says, with a glint in his eye, Jesus is saying, it's not fair to take children's food and feed it to puppies. I'm not convinced. This actually turns out to be the way the people of Israel would speak about Gentiles. What many of us cannot see in this passage is, although we perhaps could see it on this week's news, is the deep divides of political, religious, and racial bitterness that exist between human beings, and it's all packed into this little text. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people were created equal. It's a fairly new idea. Even in the early giants of our nation believed that voting was the privilege of educated gentlemen. The masses, the lower classes, could not be trusted with the privilege of voting. Now, that's something as old as Plato's Republic. What is not self-evident to us is that Jesus' response to a foreman woman, which is derogatory to our ears, was actually the expected response within context. It sounds insulting, and it was to our ears. She, perhaps, was insulted, too, but she was persistent. Even the woman admits it's true that a stratified society exists and prejudice and bigotry exist within that. But she persists. She meet, Jesus has met his match here. The woman's faith, her insistence on claiming a place in God's story of salvation is resolute. She even outsmarts Jesus, some suggest, by using the common cultural language of his religion to place herself in his story. Woman, great is your faith, and her daughter was healed. Jesus is the Messiah, clearly in the text of Matthew, the promised Savior of the chosen people of God. But considering oneself to be chosen, though, comes with some baggage. The baggage of the Bible, the baggage of privilege and status, and yes, superior, superiority and prejudice, these things emerge from this hubris that comes from understanding that we have been chosen by God. And to this temptation, the Bible opens for us a very sophisticated response that we still perhaps. Miss, I missed it until reading these Old Testament texts with a, a Jewish theologian. Both Testaments respond to this anger and hatred from which violence appears. They respond, these texts, by inviting us into the experience of being unchosen. These texts open up before us the trauma of the less loved sibling. They invite us into the experience of a Canaanite woman left out of the circle of salvation who forces herself upon Jesus to remind him who he is. Both testaments before they let us be chosen people before they choose us for god's work first open for us the life of being the unchosen the less loved the rejected this in this subtle subtle countertext of the biblical document sets a boundary on what it means to be chosen. The royal throne of our Lord Jesus Christ is the human heart. I think this uncomfortable story is in the Bible to work the same reversal on the reader, the same reversal on the church, as it did to Jesus. Somewhere in the course of this noisy battle of wills, I like to imagine the sound of another promise beginning to echo in the midst of the woman's shouting, a verse every Jew had committed to memory, the cantus firmus of our Christian Judeo-Christian faith. God's words to Abraham, I will make for you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." This unnamed Gentile is reminding Jesus of who he's called to be, not just a mission to the people like himself. We are chosen to be a blessing upon the world. This. Memory that's evoked in Jesus' ears, I think, will become the heart of the biblical ethic. Do not oppress the alien or stranger because you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Turns out, in order to live ethically, we have to walk into the heart of the dispossessed. We have to feel... Joseph puts his brothers through this drama of rejection that they may understand what it felt like for him. Jesus himself will walk to the cross of the rejected and the outcast. And our ethical language as Judeo-Christians in the world begins from the memory that you shall not oppress the alien or stranger or reject the outcast or the one not like yourself, because you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Your Savior was a poor, rejected carpenter. This story is difficult. It's difficult because, as I discovered in seminary, (laughs) Some folks do not like a human Jesus. I'm not suggesting that Jesus was prejudiced, but I am suggesting that in a moment of withdrawal, like so many of us, someone came along and reminded Jesus of the deeper calling that he was chosen to be for all people. In seminary, I had the opportunity to take a, a seminar class from a theologian from the South, uh, and he had participated, like some of you, in the civil rights movements of the 60s. And he said one line that I always echoes in my memory when I read this text. He says, sometimes the church is the, taught the true meaning of the gospel by sometimes the culture— teaches the church the true meaning of the gospel. Sometimes it is those standing outside our circle of salvation that teach us who we are supposed to be. That'll preach. You might not like it, but it'll preach. In another generation, the church mistakenly thought that her role was to bring in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was that number of people that belonged to the church. And we were to set out to conquer the world in Jesus' name. What horrors were done with that. And those triumphant images pollute many of our hymns from the 19th century that we enjoy to sing so much. Friends, we we are not called to conquer the world in Jesus' name. We are called to be Jesus in the world. Some of those hymns are just wrong. Nothing could be more clear to me today. We have been taking a journey with our ancestors of Israel for a reason. To feel the plight of the unloved, the least loved brother. The brother thrown in a pit. (laughs) To feel the drama of the unchosen. To sit alongside the knees of the Canaanite woman. Outside of our circle of grace. Listening to her to just beg for a little of what we have been given. The royal throne of God. It's not a human throne. It's the compassion in the human heart. The deepest call of Scripture, which she reminds her Savior, is that promise given to Abraham, I choose you in order that you may be a blessing to all the world. Not to conquer the world. But chosen, one voice among many with a particular calling. I understand that calling today. If the church is chosen to look upon every single human being and see in that person, no matter how different, no matter how, no how strange their opinion, no matter what their skin no matter what their practice, to see in that person the image of God for whom Christ gave himself for us. To look at the face of the outcast. To look at the face of the outcast. Sometimes the outcast within us is what it means to see Jesus. If this were truly the case, Christians could not tolerate the scenes as that which have played out in Virginia and our callous reactions to it. If it were truly the case that we looked into every eye and saw the image of Christ... We could not be silent when even our own denomination struggles to honor the image of God in gay and lesbian Christians like myself. American citizens have the right to secure borders, but only if that security does not come at the expense of the stranger. For remember, Once you, too, were strangers in the land of Egypt. With this rich text before us, we are sent out into the world. May God take our lives and consecrate them to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation for the world. May you see that grace in one another, and may you be the chosen people. And may, on your worst day, you meet a Canaanite woman who insists <laughs> that your mission is to bless all the people of the world. And to God alone will be the glory, now and forever. Amen.